Hey everybody, welcome to a bonus episode of the Photog Adventures podcast. What we're doing today is going back to our Royce Bear interview. We had a fantastic time talking to Royce. In fact, what you guys don't know is that hour and five minute long episode with him was actually an hour and 45 minutes of talking. We were able to cut things down to an hour and five minutes to keep it focused on astrophotography. But in the very beginning of our conversation with Royce, we asked him about his professional history. And we ended up being entranced by all the experience he's had in the film industry and how he handled film at that time before the days of digital editing and digital cameras and so we kept going and going and asking more and more questions just trying to figure out okay what how did you do that and what what does that mean and so we ended up going an extra 20 plus minutes just talking about his past and we didn't want to keep that in the original episode as we were focused on astrophotography but it was too good of information to leave it out there really interesting stuff where Royce was working on film using film it's redundant. I'm actually talking about video on film. It, it's a process that he'll, he'll, he'll explain much better than I am right now, but there's at one point where he's talking about dealing with the magenta side and the green side and color correcting film as it flies past in front of him live at 10 frames a second. I mean, we're talking, it's zipping past him and he's manually adjusting the channels or I don't even know what to call them as he's changing the color correction to be the correct way for this film. Uh, I, I still don't know what I'm talking about, but just listen, enjoy. I've shot film for, you know, 25, 30 years and went digital yeah. about 2000. Was it a hard okay. transition to digital or were you still? Oh, I loved digital? it. I was looking forward it, to it. I kept waiting for the megapixels to go up. Yeah, and once, yeah. once it hit six megapixels, I jumped in with both feet as mm -hmm. fast as I could. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I've had a lot of darkroom experience. I loved the mm. darkroom, but I couldn't wait to get out because uh, Photoshop is like uh, doing it with uh, the, the lights on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't have to go into a red dark room. Yeah. <laughs> right. I always saw that in high school, the dark rooms and the photog the photography clubs. And yeah. I never joined them and got into it, but I always was fascinated by the spinning door that kept the light out and oh, I never yeah. got involved. I wish I would have gotten more involved. I was involved. always intimidated by the film. It was a bit. Yeah. The process and everything, I was just like, eh, I don't know. I don't know what to do about that, you know. But the terms that we use in Photoshop and Lightroom, like dodging and burning, they all come from working with film. They certainly do. Mm -hmm. When you did it professionally, did you actually do your own dodging and burning, or was there even someone else hired to do that for you in your photos? I usually d did my own. And uh, for commercial work, we had to shoot everything on color transparency, oh. which, uh, you know, what you see is what you get. I mean, oh, okay. uh, it's the original film that went through the camera. I shot 35 millimeter, two and a quarter, four by five, and even eight by 10 color transparencies. Mm. I mean, you're talking 20 bucks an exposure back in the 80s. Wow. Even. So, oh. Wow. So you didn't take 18 shots or 1,000 getting ready for that no. shot. No. And you learned, it, you know, it was a great discipline for me. Mm -hmm. uh, even today, I have trouble remembering, oh, it's just digital. I can shoot as many as I want. <laughs> right. I have lots of storage, you know. But in, in the old days, you calculated a lot on the exposure to make sure you got it right. Yeah. Especially if you were shooting people because you couldn't bracket. Oh, mm. yeah. What, what did you do with dynamic range? How did you do anything with dynamic range? Uh, it was a tough thing. Uh, there were some films out that increased, uh, shortened your dynamic range so that you could get more contrasty, saturated okay. results. 
and and there were some films that uh, gave you a longer range. For instance, if you were shooting motion picture film, they had a film called ECO, uh, Ector Chrome Commercials. I can't remember what the O stood <laughs> for, but it was a very low contrast uh, ectochrome reversal film that mm. allowed you to compress the contrast range of the scene, especially since you had to duplicate that to make the release prints. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. I worked as a motion picture timer and printer. Uh, that's a person that does all the dissolve work it oh. puts a, a code on the side of the film so that when they go into the printing process, A, B, and C rolls, oh. that it can do dissolves, fade in and fade out. Oh, I see what you're saying, the transition yeah, between. The transitions, but mainly so that you could uh, balance the color from scene to scene and from emulsion to emulsion. Mm. Remember the wow. films when they were manufactured had certain tolerances uh, even if you had professional films. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, at National Geographic, they had a guy that bought film from Kodak that would check the emulsions. And once he got an emulsion that was just right, had the best color balance and rendition, he would buy up a whole bunch of it. They would freeze it, and then they would ship it out to their photographers. Oh. Freeze it? Yeah. Why would they have to freeze it? Uh, so that it doesn't change. It starts out oh. on the green bias and starts to go towards the magenta bias as it ages. Wow. I mean, I had no idea about any of this stuff. So my job oh. as a motion picture timer was to take all these different emulsions from the various shoots on a uh, movie production mm -hmm. and the various different lighting scenes and try to make everything so that it looked consistent. I used to go to movies with my wife and start pulling my hair out mm -hmm. because <laughs> somebody didn't uh, correct from scene to scene. Right, you know, right. It would so jump huge in color, color transition. Yeah. Oh, my God. The things you take for granted in the Lightroom sliders you go back and forth. So they would call that color grading today. Yeah. As a professional color grader. Yeah. yeah, and you know, when you go in and Photoshop and you try to, and you look at an image and, oh, this looks too green, uh, let's see, what do I do? Well, of course, it's uh, it's the green channel, and you add more magenta, mm -hmm. you know, opposite the complementary colors and so on and so forth, like the opposite of blue is kind of an orange color, right. and so on and so forth. I had to do that as the film went past me uh, very quickly. Ah, yeah. And you did code it. that. What do you mean going past you? Well, you know how you have your take-up roll, your roll of film, and it goes through a, a little tiny viewer projector. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And okay. as you roll that back and forth, it slides in front of you through the monitor. Right. And then you have to push a code button really? that enters the codes. And the, uh, in the old days, they put these little uh, aluminum foil ticks along between the sprocket holes to tell the printers that this was a change towards the magenta, this was a change oh, wow. to darken, mm. and so on. It's so like, forth. make sure you take this to magenta. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, and you did so it, it was all fly. done mechanically, yeah. you know, by mirrors and s filter sliders and the printers. 
and gates, diaphragm gates, and so on and so forth. That's it's all amazing. mechanically done. And you had to do it on the fly. It wasn't something... Yeah, you had to do it on the fly. In other words, you, you know, 24 frames equals a second. So yeah. you would have that film go Whoa. by you probably at about... 10 frames a second. So uh-huh. you slowed it down so you could see what was going. Then you'd stop, you'd see a color change or a density change, and you would code in what needed to be done. And so people asked me, well, how, how did you understand color? Well, I had to do this on the fly. Mm. <laughs> at 10 frames a second. Doesn't yeah, seem 10 that frames slow. a right. second. <laughs> so, so for an average movie that was like an hour and 20 minutes, how long would it take you to process oh, a film t- like that? It would take you days. Really? To do so not just hours, like but days. Oh, yeah, days. Oh, wow. Was the world spinning when you went outside and looked at other things because <laughs> you were constantly looking at films zipping past you, your face? You would have to take a break every, <laughs> every few minutes. Oh, my wow. God. That's amazing. That's awesome. I... I really do take for advantage all the awesome sliders and the ease of everything that we do in digital. Oh, yeah. The yeah. ease. Yeah, to edit a video now is an oh. unbelievably easy <laughs> compared uh, we, to that. It was incredible what we had to go through to do um, changes. We would go into the dark room and make 8 by 10 composite transparencies through different layers of masking Mm. and everything. If we wanted to make a correction to a scene to dodge and burn, and then that would be duplicated on one 8x10 sheet of film, and that's what went to the printer for separations. Oh, wow. Just just lots of uh, weird things. In the early... In the early days of digital, let's say all about in the 1990s, -hmm. uh, in the mid-90s, Photoshop came out at about 1999. uh, Version 2.0 was in 1992, I believe. I know I was using it in 95, so I can't remember when the first one came out. Yeah. So like version three. Yeah, I think yeah. 94 95. was version three, yeah. first one to have layers. But right. anyway, we what? would do these digital... Photoshop without layers sounds nuts. <laughs> yeah. We would do these digital corrections, and then we would send it to special output rendering labs that would take the digital files and project them onto a Black's uh, cathoid ray tube one line at a time, and it would have a blue filter in front of it, and then a red filter, and then a green filter, and it would expose a sheet of film, um, oh, color the- transparency film, okay, so that you could make those changes. Wow. Okay, Whoa. and that would so take the... back d- to analog. Back to yeah. analog, yeah. okay. And in the motion picture industry, all these uh, special effects in the 1990s had to be done on 35 uh, millimeter film the same way, frame by frame. It took about one minute to expose one frame of 35 millimeter film from the digital things. Remember, there's 24 frames a second. Right, practically right. a half an hour right. just to get a second yeah. of your footage. <laughs> I, I can't remember what they called those uh, conversions now, um, but the, the terminology goes past my head. But yeah. Let me cut in here real quick. Roy sent me the information that he's trying to remember here. That's the Solitaire and the Kodak LVT. 
This information will be linked on the podcast description, but he says that the solitaires were used to output digitally retouched files to 35 millimeter slides or negatives. He told me that the cine models were used to output some special computer effects for some of the Star Wars movies. Some of these uh, big movie releases that you see, some of the Star yeah. Wars releases that were in the uh, 1990s, uh, I mean, they would have... 10 of these units going mm. all day long, exposing the film, bringing the digital back to analog so right. they could put it into the film. <laughs> That's, wow. Oh, my God. So now we know why it would take three years and millions of dollars to make a movie. Yeah. yeah. Because no, just, that's just one little instance. And you know? they're just probably just completely out of business, right? Then no one's doing it that oh, way no. anymore. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just, no, yeah people, each one of these, each one of these uh, converters from digital to analog you know, for 35 millimeter, cost $70,000. Holy Wow. Yeah. And oh. they would have 10 of these going all day long. Wow. $700,000 of your budget gone just yeah. for that. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to hear what made you fall in love with photography or if it was just something that was natural for you and began from the beginning without question. Well, I was about 16 years old, and I uh, got kind of hooked on photography. I loved doing close-up work, and I made mm. my own little close-up lenses to put in front of the lenses. I borrowed my dad's, um, I think it was called a Argus C3 camera, and it was brand. a rangefinder camera, mm -hmm. had a manual cocking shutter. Uh, you could easily double expose with it. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> which you didn't want to. <laughs> I wasn't smart enough in those days to know, to know what a good double exposure could be <laughs> yeah, used for. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's used for the big and the small portrait inside. <laughs> above your head. The classic 80s mom <laughs> portrait. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember as a high school senior in a little town in Nessa, Oregon, about 2,000, out in the sticks, you know, just reading every photography magazine I could get my hand on, everything that the library had. Yeah. I'd go to the county library and get everything they had, so I just ate it up. And then getting into the career of photography, was that a challenge or was that... Well, when I first started, I, I thought, you know, photography is just going to be too hard. There's way too much competition. Oh. This was a few years after the movie Blow Up and everybody wanted to be a photographer. Oh, really? So, <laughs> so you, you joined the masses for that. Hey, yeah, so I decided, well, I'm going to be a biologist instead. So I worked oh, in, really? the, in the university department as a biological photographer photographing oh, cool. uh, st stuff through a microscope. Oh, okay. And uh, then we got pregnant, ran out of money, so I went into <laughs> Salt Lake City to see if I could find a job. And voila, they hired me on the spot because uh, the guy who was processing all their commercial film had ran it through the wrong bath the night before, and they were no desperate. Yeah. Oh, wow. So they let him go. Yeah. So the next day I started <laughs> processing film. 
I ran three different systems simultaneously in the dark through three and a half gallon tanks manually, wow. doing oh, manual wow. agitation. So I ran what was called uh, Ectochrome E3, which is for your commercial Ectochrome, oh. E4, which was for your regular amateur, and then C22, which was your color negative. And this is at a processing lab that you work? Yeah, it was okay. a processing okay. lab. It's called Stockdale and Company. Mm. And uh, do you remember back in the days, uh, many, many years ago, before video they used to say uh, film at 10 film and uh, 10. that's because they were really using film mm. <laughs> and uh, Stockdale and Company was the only lab in Salt Lake City who processed the 16 millimeter motion picture film oh. that was used for the news oh, really? so they would they had to get everything done shot by nine o'clock oh, yeah get it over to us and process it maybe mm. by 8 30 and then run back to their oh, television man. stations and edit that and clip it together and run it before the news wow. all that this day. is yeah. everything they filmed that day they wanted out in the news yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh wow this was before That's video pressure. wow you know video cameras were just starting to come out uh, in about 1975, but a mobile unit was huge. Right, really, yeah, really hard to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We processed that film. It was a fun and exciting time. And then I got my wow. first job with a, a major magazine in 1975. Left that, and uh, and I'd use the free free processing. Uh, from the major lab back in you know in the early 70s to build up a portfolio. Oh, so when I nice. went to a magazine, I I had a nice <laughs> had portfolio. Not, yeah. Nice. Yeah, and I bet it. I mean, the polish that he probably had from his processing mm -hmm. lab that yeah. other people didn't have made him stand way out. Yeah. Well, that's nice. That's so awesome. I'm I'm intimidated by how much you would have to know compared to what I had to learn to get going into <laughs> photography. That's Such incredible. a different realm. Yeah, yeah. It really so is. as you can see, when digital first started rearing its head in in '92, I mean, I was grabbing at that every <laughs> chance I get. And then when digital cameras started appearing in uh, the late '90s and early 2000. Uh, I switched just as fast as I could. Mm. I also started a company called inkjetart.com, which uh, you may have heard of it. I yes. uh, ran that company for about five years and then sold it and kind of semi-retired after mm. that. The uh, Inkjet Art was a company that we researched along with Epson uh, major major steps in the archival process. When mm. inkjet printers first came out, prints would last anywhere from six months to 18 months before they started showing significant fading. Oh, yeah. really? We worked with a bunch of third-party uh, companies to produce inks and papers that would bring that up to, 20, to 10, 20, 30. By the time I had sold the company, we were, uh, the longevity 
rate was up to past 100 years. Wow. It was better than <laughs> film. Film maxed out at about 60 to 90 years. Mm. Uh, the pigmented inks and special papers in inkjet, you know, were projected to last 100 to 150 years. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, so in 1999 is when I started that company, and I wanted to... Uh, I saw what was happening. Photographers were starting to get digital cameras then that uh, they were only 1.3 megapixels. Some of the right. early ones that Kodak put out cost $27,000. Wow. A Nikon camera fitted with a Kodak sensor and a storage battery storage unit, I mean, hard drive that you mm -hmm. carried around you. The <laughs> wow. journalist... We're shooting 1.3 megapixels, and they were paying $27,000 for that. Oh, my God. And uh, I knew yeah, that as we started to go up in megapixels that photographers would need a way to output their pictures mm -hmm. and that they could do themselves. And Inject right. looked very promising. So that I started that company and started to come out with uh, inkjet papers and ink, inkjet inks that had more permanency and gave photographic quality. Wow. And the rest is history. The, <laughs> yeah. the company grew, and within five years, I sold it. Because I'm a, not very good at math. <laughs> uh, I'm not a very good accountant. I know I can hire people to do that. Yeah. But, uh, and I was afraid I was going to blow it. So I sold the <laughs> company for a good amount of money before I... I uh, lost it all by yeah. some stupid mistake. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm move. pretty sure I've seen that website before. Yeah, me too. Because I was, ex I mean, Inch my, my friend, I, I made a friend in college who had a lot of money. He was from the Middle East. And uh, he had bought one of the first Kodaks that you could hold. It was kind of like this, it looked kind of like the Luke Skywalker, you know, uh, micro binoculars that they had. So you look through <laughs> yeah. this thing and take it as a one megapixel camera. And I used that. I, I went up my roof and I took pictures of all the plants. I took pictures of everything and the sunset. And I just and I still have the pictures from that camera, and uh, on my on my computer. So what was the megapixel on it that? was one, one one megapixel. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, a six forty by four eighty was what it produced. Roughly, was awesome roughly that, which is like TV then. res, which is pretty sweet back when then. When your yeah, monitor is like 800 by 600. That was 0.3 megapixels, by the way. Oh, it was 0.3. You're point right. 0.3, right. yeah. It was 0.3. <laughs> it, was, it was like a year or two later, he got a one megapixel. That was <laughs> yeah. pretty exciting, yeah. Dun, 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 we got one. Yeah, yeah. yeah a megapixel. Apple guys. produced one of the first consumer ones, and it was about like seven or eight hundred dollars yeah yeah and it was yeah. 640 by 480 right just like you're talking about yeah i got to play with that too that yeah. was which was a full incredible. monitor screen you can right. see it on full screen right <laughs> and graphic designers were buying them up like hotcakes because they could photograph something and then put it into their mm. computer and design around it right oh, yeah and, and it was great for putting up images onto a website Imagine oh, yeah. this, <laughs> being able to, you know, otherwise you had to shoot something and then go out and get that scanned. Mm -hmm. Early yeah. scans uh, from a 35 millimeter slide were 70 bucks a pop to what get them mean? into wow. digital. You paid someone to convert it to digital for 70 yeah, bucks a pop. 70 bucks a pop. Wow. And then Kodak came out in 1990 with the um, 
photo disk si- system mm. that you could go into places like Borg Anderson. They bought one of the first ones here in Salt Lake City, for instance. And uh, th- they were about $70,000, but you could give them a bunch of slides or a bunch of negatives, and they could scan them for a buck a piece. And put them on a CD for you, right? Yeah, you and put, put them yeah, on a CD. Yeah, yeah. And it was just incredible. Yes, the resolution was only 18, 6 megapixels, 18 mm. megabytes, but... I mean, Still, that, was pre- that was pretty good. Then. Yeah, someone yeah. was planning their business around $70 a pop, and then that came out, and like, oh, yeah. there was yeah. that business plan. You could yeah. make a 6 by 9 inch image in a magazine, mm-hmm. color separation, with that resolution. And the pornography industry in California was the first to recognize the potential of that. Oh, and sure. they just went, they actually advanced. Uh, photomechanical separations in the printing industry what? by five years. Wow. Because the pornography they industry. really invested yeah. in it. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. they were using all this Codex, you know, uh, CD scans right. and learning how to make best use of that to yeah. color profile. <laughs> That's wow. an awesome, awesome bit of trivia that I yeah. never thought I'd hear tonight. We, we have hilarious. RGB color profile file that one was called ycc mm-hmm. i've seen that as an mm-hmm. option and i've never chosen it but i've seen it somewhere in the past yeah yeah well i have a bunch of qu- listener questions and we have a- and that's where we went into the actual astrophotography stuff and the questions from the listeners so man seriously what a different world photography and film was back then just 20 to 30 years ago it's changed so much who knows what my son's going to experience when he gets older and starts doing photography maybe there's another advance out there that's going to make digital recording seem crazy and archaic so thanks for listening to this bonus episode of the photog adventures podcast i want to remind you guys also to get out there and have a photog adventure of your own and as you do so let us know how it went let us know what you guys did well or maybe what you wish you could have done better we'll have a regular podcast on monday episode 19 where we're joined by landscape photographer nathan st andre out of southern utah nathan joins us to talk about his success recently of getting into a gallery down in st george as well as winter photography in southern utah places to go ways to do it and ways to be safe and layer your clothing so you don't have to wear a lot you just need to wear smart so keep an eye out for that episode on monday and have a great rest of your weekend see you guys